Hey guys, it's Heaven from Just a Grown True Crime, and today I'm going to be telling you about this app called Anchor. It helped me start my podcast, and it can help you start yours. Anchor is a free app that lets you use it from your phone or your computer. So if you want to do it on the go, and you want to just record, you can record one. Anchor will also distribute your podcast for you on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and so much more to get your own podcast out there. You can make money from your own podcast with no minimum listenership. So it's everything you want in just one podcast. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. I did. What are you waiting for? Hey guys, it's Heaven from the podcast Just a Girl in True Crime. And today we are going to Kansas. Today or tonight, early morning, wherever you're at, we will be talking about the case of Robert Andrew Barlet- Barletti Jr. I'm not sure if I said his last name right, but that's how I'm going to pronounce it. So, I apologize if I said it wrong. Um, so, we'll just hop right into it because this is a big case. And I literally just finished my notes so I can get this podcast out today. So, let's jump right in. Robert was born January 31st in 1949 in Sahaga Falls, Ohio. Pretty sure I pronounced that wrong, too. The first of two sons born to Robert Sr., a die setter for the Ford Motor Company, and his mother was named Mary. And she was a homemaker. His father was a Catholic of an Ita- of Italian decep- descendants and would raise his family in a dip- deeply religious household. His family attended Mass on a regular basis, and both of their sons would attend um, religious classes on a regular basis as well. As a child, Robert was very intelligent, but was also a loner who rarely played outside his home and was seldom. Had friends had friends visit to socialize. So he didn't like have a lot, I guess. I think I like messed up on my notes. That's why it like was a long pause, so I apologize for that. He had a speech impediment and wore thick glasses from the age of five and was severely nearsighted. So when they say like um he wears his them like thick bottle glasses, I always think of like Coke gla- like the Coke bottles. Um I remember being in eighth grade and I had this history teacher and she wore those like thick Coke bottle glasses, but she was mean and I don't even remember her name no matter how many times I try to remember it. Um, to make matters worse, he was also diagnosed with high blood pressure, which he had to take several medications for. Robert was very large, unathletic, whereas his younger brother, he basically just was very involved with sports um, from an early age. And unfortunately, Robert's father valued sports 
and physical education, and he viewed his older son as a lack of interest in sports, as a failure, and often compared him unfavorably to his younger brother. So his younger brother obviously was the favorite because his younger brother was athletic and was more into this, and Robert just wasn't. And you know, that's okay because not a lot of people are into sports or just don't, not don't, or just, they're not good at them. And I don't think you should not favor, you shouldn't favor one child over the other because they don't have the same interests as you. That's my opinion. And I definitely felt that growing up because now I was in cheerleading and my brother was in football, but my parents could care less that I was in cheerleading they didn't go to any of my practices. They didn't support me in any of my games because I was a year older than my brother. So I was in the next group up. And they always would watch his practices, get his pictures and uniforms, and support him at the practices and him at the football game. But they just didn't give me the same support. And I definitely felt my whole entire childhood that I was a... um. I wasn't liked very much by my parents, and it was no secret that I was the oddball. But hey, you live and you learn. So, that, it was just terrible. And it was bad. And I just felt like they never cared about it, which sucked. So occasionally, his father would physically and emotionally abuse his children and beat them... Let me flip my page and beat them with leather strap with like a leather strap one ouch that had to have hurt Robert performed very well academically though his teachers often found him difficult to teach in part due to both his fullness and being bullied by other students because of this as a child he was also seldom socialized in school activities um, with his peers so he didn't really participate when robert reached puberty he discovered that he was a homosexual initially and he kept this a very close guarded secret probably because of the time frame he was born and since he was born in 1949 he was just afraid um, to come out to his parents and was also probably afraid of like what they were going to say or do because you know back in the old time they this is something they didn't agree on they agreed that men and women should be the only ones that should be in love and you know being in love with a man or another woman was just wrong so that must have been rough for him and since he kept the secret, he didn't become open about his uh, sexuality for several years. But in his early teen years, he briefly had a girlfriend. Um, I couldn't really find much on that. If I had to assume, maybe his dad was like, oh, well, you know, you don't have a girlfriend yet. So something must be wrong. So he probably just brought a girlfriend in just to please his father. Because his father was, you know, physically and emotionally abusive. And I could not imagine... I could imagine him saying stuff like that. 
By Robert's mid-teen years, he began to dis display a degree of self-confidence, which would often manifest itself um, via its, his attitude to other individuals in which he would exert to somewhat rude and condescending attitude, particularly, particularly, particular, I'm sorry, I can't pronounce that word right, towards women, which, oh boy, that is crazy. He also learned about cooking and art and developed showmanship. So on Christmas Day in 1965, the whole family drove to Canton, Ohio to visit some relatives. But that evening, his dad had a heart attack at the age of 39. Wow, that is such a young age to have a heart attack. I mean, that's crazy. I didn't think you could have a heart attack at heart attack at that young of an age but hey anything can happen um that's what I put wow that was young two days later Robert returned to see a Holga falls by himself when he arrived back home his family had broke to news to him that his father had died because of this Robert sought solace in his religion and then later read extensively about many faiths and became cynically about all religion. In 1965, Robert saw the film adaptation of the John Fowles book, The Collector. The plot of this movie revolves around a man who stalks and abducts a young woman he finds attractive and then holds her captive in his windowless stone basement. So, wow. We already see where this is going, guys. Viewing her as little more than an attractive specimen. After several weeks, of the, after several weeks the woman dies of a contracted illness despite her captive's efforts to keep her alive. Robert did later state this movie had formed a most lasting impression on him. Yep, I guess that's totally normal for him to do, you know, not really. Shortly after his father died, his mom did remarry. But this act was met with resentment by her older son, who viewed the, mo who viewed the move as a form of betrayal against his father. Since this happened, Robert became increasingly withdrawn and further immersed, immersed himself in the solitary activities he had participated in since childhood, such as painting, collecting stamps, and collecting coins, and writing to foreign pen pals. Robert claimed later writing to pen pals in countries such as Vietnam and Bermuda, Bermuda, if I could talk, and that the fact these pen pals would send him stamps for his collection and photographs of mythical art and historical facts, ancient cultures, and stuff like that, 
and it would also lead for him to develop an interest in primitive art photographs and antiques which is kind of cool that he had foreign like pen pals and they would send him stuff and he would say hey i'm interested in this and they'd be like oh well here you go you can like it's like bringing your culture their culture into his world and being like this stuff is pretty cool that'd be pretty cool i think so so approximately in 1965 he would be in, began collecting these artifacts this practice would later inspire him to open his own business in 1982 and we're going to go back and visit that briefly um in a little bit in this, so now we're going to go to 1967. So in the summer of that year, Robert graduated from high school. And throughout his studies, he had earned such excellent grades and displayed um, such, poten such potential that in 19... Now we're just going to like go back a year. In 1966, one teacher had actually placed him into an independent study program. So shortly after Robert relocated, he ended up relocating to Kansas City. From there, he enrolled into the Kansas City Art Institute with aspirations of becoming a college professor. Okay, Robert, that's a good goal. Too bad that wasn't your plan, unfortunately, and things turned out for the worse. With within his first year there, He was considered an attentive and talented student, although by his second year in art school, Robert became a vocal anti-authorian, I think I'm saying that word wrong, but it's, it's early in the morning, so please, please mind me. Um, he also became acquainted with a clique of students who supplied him with drugs which he then sold to other students for a profit so you know he was good his first year or so and then after it just seemed like start things started to go downhill um he ended up getting a little a little reputation among his fellow students and he was known as like a minor drug dealer hmm in addition, he began to drink alcohol on the regular and also engaged um, in criminal acts of like animal torture. At least, at least there were three occasions while a student at Kansas, at the Kansas City Art Institute. During two of these instances, instances he tortured a duck and a chicken in the presence of his peers, which is so traumatic, like why? And then I put it in my notes after that, what a damn monster. Um, the third one is very, very sickening. So if you don't wanna hear it, um, I I'll say trigger warning again um, when it comes closer, which trigger warning because here it comes, so. You don't want to listen to it, just skip a little bit forward. So if people thought that was where it couldn't get any worse, they were wrong. The third instance, he experimented with um, sedatives and tranquilizers on a dog. 
Um, that's just terrible because why would you want to do that to a dog? What did that dog, chicken, or duck ever do to you, Robert? <sighs> um, by the age of 19, Robert was arrested for attempting to sell methamphetamines to an undercover officer. Um, he was released after posting a $3,000 bond, which is equivalent to 22000 in 2019. He would le later plead guilty to the offense and was handed just a five-year suspended sentence. So, a slap on the wrist to me, basically. But just one month after his first arrest, Robert and two other students were arrested for possession of marijuana and LSD in Johnson County. So, you know, I got this slap on the wrist. That's basically, if I was the judge, that's a slap in the face because a month later you're caught again for doing, having drugs on you. So you obviously didn't learn. But in this case, um, Robert could not post bond and he spent okay he could not post bond and he only spent five days in jail i don't know if i like miswrote something or what but that just doesn't seem right to me although the charges against him and one and another student would be dropped due to lack of evidence so maybe i just got ahead of myself in 1969 he had a voluntary he had voluntarily withdrew from the Kansas City Art Institute after receiving harsh criticism from college administrators for killing then cooking a duck for quote the sake of art that's why he said he did it so he just left the school which if i was that teacher who reached out and put him in reached out and like lended him a hand and put him in the independent study that'd be a huge slap in my face because how are you going to do that to me robert i i stuck my neck out for you and you did that that mm. um so he chose to remain in kansas city and in september that year he moved to an ad an address within the hyde park district for 4315 Charlotte Street. By this stage, Robert had been open, openly gay for several years, and he began spending much of his time with male prostitutes, drug addicts, petty criminals, and runaways. So, you know, as you can see, it's obviously still getting worse, and it just seems like... What are you doing, Robert? Just what are you doing? He would then befriend these inv individuals, then try to help that help them and free them from their drug addictions and general lethargic or criminal lifestyles. And he was adamant about that throughout pretty much of the like the nineteen seventies. He had no he had no physical contact with any of these individuals, so like he didn't do anything with them. He just 
tried to take them in and tried to help. So maybe like for their, that's what it said, you know, don't know if it's true or not, but he just tried to help it look like. To several of his neighbors, Robert stated he gradually almost felt like a foster parent to many of these youths. So maybe that's why, like, I'm taking in, I'm helping them, maybe to turn my life around, but no. Robert was just fooling everybody, really. So, by the early 1980s, many of his older acquaintances had ceased any form of social contact with him, with Robert increasingly relying on these young men as a source of friendship and companionship. He became very frustrated at many of these individuals' ignorance to his efforts to assist them and steer them away from the lifestyles of the harm and deterioration. Despite later claims to investigators, Robert would often engage in sexual relations with several of these individuals and would establish a degree of control over them in part to engage with the sexual relations viva methods which included loaning them money and allowing them to live there rent free at his house for periods of time so strike what I just said he didn't do this out of kindness of his heart he just wanted to have sex with them and you know have his way nasty if you ask me let me take a drink real quick so whoo man that's now his neighbors say robert was considered flamboyant yet helpful and um civic-minded a civic-minded individual despite the general unkept state of his property and somewhat halty attitude. So I guess he just, you know, nice neighborhood. You expect like, nice, I don't know if it was a nice neighborhood, but this how I'm going to describe it. Nice neighborhood and then you see all these people with like nice lawns, nice house, and then you probably see Robert's yard and house and you're like, damn, what the hell? That's not right. That just doesn't fit in. So we're going to go jump back to the 1970s again. So in the 1970s, he assisted in an an organizational events of the South Hyde Park Crime Prevention and Neighborhood Association, becoming the chairman in the 1980s. (laughs) That's, That's crazy considering everything he's doing and encouraging neighborhood watch patrols oh boy I just don't even know like how that happened like none of these kids like spoke out or maybe they were afraid I I don't know but he became chairman somehow but then he relinquished his position with the organization Um, Robert would also represent his neighborhood at fundraising events 
for like local for like a local public television station but he also disengaged himself from that from these events by the mid 1980s so he started in the 1970s he kept it for 10 years and by the 1980s he's like yeah i'm not feeling this anymore so i'm just gonna i'm just gonna stop it okay so shortly before robert had moved to his charlotte street address he began working as a short cook in many restaurants around kansas city to help pay for lawyer fees and fines he got from the drug arrest he endured at the age of 18 which is good because he's like okay i have to pay these like i i gotta do something you know they they help me out so why not pay them As a means of obtaining additional income, he also sold many items of his art and antiques that he acquired and collected from. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what word I put in there. Oh, from like the stuff he collected that he established in. Africa, Asia, South America, and various Pacific Rim countries. He would initially operate this side business from his home. Both his careers and side business gradually flourished and by and by like and by the nineteen seventies he began working as a senior cook, then at a several reowned Kansas City restaurants also joining a local chef's association and helped establish a training program for aspiring chefs at a local community college okay that's nice because you know when i hear aspiring chef my favorite chef of all times is gordon ramsay obsessed with him don't know why i just am i think i like his accent the much and hell's kitchen is probably my favorite show with him so that that's pretty cool as his own business began to burgeon he began to devote more time or more of more attention and devoted it to his own business as opposed to his work as a chef so he was a chef and he's like you know i'm not i'm just not feeling this as much so let me let me just focus on my business by 1981, he got several contractual agreements with both national and international contracts for his own business. He viewed his business as a full-time job and later seized as working as a chef. So remember how I said in 1992, he decided like with the store? Well, now we're hopping into there. He actually began renting his booth at the Westport the Westport Flea Market. The store's name was Bob's Bizarre Bizarre Bazaar. I I just pretty sure I pronounced it wrong, but hey. It mainly sold and traded primitive art, jewelry and antiques, although occasionally making a generous monthly profit, the income typically generated viva this business was often not sufficient to maintain his daily expenses and 
didn't really make ends meet. So because of that happening, Robert would occasionally have to sell goods to his fellow merchants at a financial loss or steal or savage for items to sell at his own booth, which, you know, that's not really a good way to start, Robert. Like, what are you doing? You wanted to open this, then you just should know a little bit more before you, I guess, decide to go head first or like go blind into it, you know? You know what I mean, guys? Um, he would often take lodgers at his home as means of gaining an additional income as well. At Robert's work premises, Robert did in fact become acquainted with a fellow merchant named Paul Howe, who operated a booth adjacent from his own. Soon after, Robert became acquainted with Powell's younger son named Jerry. Initially, Jerry and his friends scathed and taunted Robert over his over-homosexuality. But according to Robert, Jerry did end up later confiding in him that him and his friends occasionally earned money as male prostitutes. So, Jerry, just one thing. Who's judging who now? Because you judge Robert for being a homosexual, but what are you and your friends doing? Like, same thing. That's just insane to me. By the early 1980s, Paul eventually relocated his business from the Westport Flea Market to a store within the building located close to the intersection of 39th and Main Street. His family then moved into an apartment above the shop, and despite his younger son occasionally engaging in heated arguments with Robert, they would end up, they would reunite a casual friendship. Often, Robert offered his legal or financial assistance should Jerry ever encounter minor scraps of the law. So it looks like to me, from when I was doing my notes, Robert was like trying to be like a low-key lawyer or something. I don't know. Maybe it was because like when he got in trouble and stuff, he's like, hey, I've been in trouble at 19. I get it. And if you're wondering like why I'm talking about Paul and Jerry, I promise it'll make sense in a little bit. This stuff is crucial. So by the summer of 1984... Jerry Howe turned 19. So now we're going to go into that. That was basically a little bit, a majority of Robert's life from what he was like as a child, some home base. And now we're going to jump into the murders. I went into some detail with the murders, but I didn't go into all detail because when I was reading it, I was like, uh, I don't want to discuss all this horrific things. Because some of it was bad, and I I just don't want to subject you guys to it right away, since me being a new thing. Um, I will have future episodes that have totally, totally bad and horrific murders. Um, like, I plan on doing the Toy Box Killer, and I listened to it once on Morbid, and oh my god, I think I had to, like, pause for like a whole day before I finished it and then 
they were like, don't look up the transcripts. Well, dummy me, look up the transcripts, and I wish I never did. But anyway, so we're going to do some more, I, I promise. Um, so like I said, we're going to go to the murders. Roberts was believed to have killed his first victim on July 5th in 1984. And the name of that victim, can you guys guess who it was? Yep, that's right. It was Jerry. Jerry Howe, who was only 19 years old. He had a close reacquainted with with the year prior they, so they reacquainted a year prior to his murder not good he abducted Jerry on the promise of driving the youth to attend a dancing contest in Mary, Miriam according to Robert he piled Jerry with alcohol dium and I might pronounce this drug wrong. Acepromazine? Promazine? Something like that. Both in his car and at his house until he became unconscious. He then injected Jerry with a heavy tranquilizer before binding him to his bed. Like, what the fuck, Robert? You knew his dad. I mean, come on. That's just weird. And you wanted to give him legal advice and stuff, and then you're going to turn around and do this shit. Now, Jerry was restrained to Robert's bed for a period of approximately 28 hours. <laughs> Holy shit, that's a long time to me. It might not seem like it to people, but it is to me. Um, trigger warning, if you don't want to hear this. Robert then repeatedly... Drugged, tortured, and raped and violated him with foreign objects. When Jerry kept asking why he was being treated in this manner and tried to plead with Robert to be free, but it just didn't work. But according to Robert, Jerry either asphyxiated on his own vomit or the combination of the gag and medicines were too strong for him to be able to catch his breath. Robert's next victim was named Robert Sheldon, and I'm just going to refer to him as Sheldon, and he was only 23. Sheldon had lodged with Robert on April 10th in 1985, two days prior to his, to his formulating intent to keep him captive on April 12th. He was killed by suffocation on April 15th. His head was initially buried in Robert's garden. If I read this right, his Head was actually in the freezer first. I want to say it was Sheldon. And then he moved it to his garden. Later his skull was retrieved and stowed. Okay, sorry. That's somebody else. It was actually stowed in Robert's bedroom closet. The next one was Mark Wallace. At, and he was 20. He would, He was discovered by chance. Hiding from a thunderstorm in Robert's tool shed. Wallace died of a combination of lack of oxygen and injected with drugs at 7 p.m. on June 23rd. The next victim is James Ferris, age 25. The first victim who Robert stated he had intentionally tortured prior to his death. Robert noticed James became delirious during his captivity as a result of, as the result of torture that he basically went through in the medication he had given to him 
in one of finals robert's notations in his like log james capture begin during like the beginning of it he was unable to sit up more than for than 15 10 to 15 seconds his death was noted in robert's torture log like i said before with the notation stop the project the next one was todd stoops age 21 on june 17 1985 robert kidnapped him began a sex being sexually frustrated with him the torture he endured prior to his death was electrical shocks viva spatula placed across his eyelid in an unsuccessful attempt to blind him todd died of a combination of blood loss and infection on july 1st and the last and final victim was larry wade pearson age 20 june 23rd 1987 he was held captive until August 5th. Pearson was killed by suffocation after six weeks of captivity, which included piano wire tied around his wrist with the intent of causing nerve damage. His head was kept his head was kept and buried in Robert's garden. Maybe he was the one that had the um one in the freezer in the garden. I read it in one of the victims and I can't remember which one to save the life of me. Um, and then he abducted somebody else in March 29th of 1988, but this one actually got away. He was a male prostitute named Chris Bryson, who he lured to his home upon the promise of payment for sex. Robert knocked Bryson out with an iron bar and then bound him to his bed. He was subjected to similar methods of abuse and torture that previous victims had endured. But in Bryson's case, Robert repeatedly swabbed his eyes with ammonia before explaining to him, the only things you need to think about are you, me, and this house. After several days, Robert began to trust his captive, although he was willing to discuss aspects of abuse and torture. He was receiving there would be no 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 negotiations of sexual abuse robert then finished the discussion with a stern warning i've gotten this far with other people before and they are dead now because of mistakes they made bryson did make an escape by jumping from the second floor window wearing nothing but a doll collar around his neck and breaking a bone in his foot in the process he then ran to a meter runner across the street, shouting him for to call the police. Then the meter runner led, Bryce, led Bryson to the house where he began approaching, whereupon the occupants called the police, who arrived there within minutes, questioned him at the scene by four officers. He then told them he had been hitchhiking when he was abducted by Robert, who had kidnapped raped and tortured him for four four days before he escaped by jumping from a window on the second floor of the property. Robert also kept him bound to a bed on the second floor of the house throughout much of the time he had been held against his will, repeatedly sodomizing him, drugging him, and injecting his throat 
was drain cleaner to diminish his ability to speak loudly. The officer noted that in addition to the dog collar and the broken foot, he also had red swollen eyes and visible scars and welts across his entire body. Two officers were told to maintain a discreet, discreet surveillance of the property as Bryson was driven to the um, Maroda Medical Center, accompanied by the third officer for treatment as the fourth officer radioed the Kansas City Police Department to request a formal search warrant of the property um, drafted to be drafted. Brayson also told police that his captor had shown him some Polaroid images of men who appeared to be deceased with an explanation with an explanation that these had been previous individuals he had unsuccessfully attempted to collect as his sexual slaves. Furthermore, his captive had informed Bryson that he had no intention of ever allowing him to leave his property and that he killed the other men and he had captured he had he killed them that he captured and treated in this manner that if Bryson was to become a nuisance or threat to him, he would either be subjected to greater levels of torture than what he had already been through, or simply he would just be killed. Robert was eventually arrested for charges pertaining to the sexual abuse, assault of Bryson, declined to allow officers. So when they got the warrant, like, and stuff, they, he basically was like, no, you're not coming in. Even though they had something. So they ended up searching they ended up searching his home and searching like the grounds and they discovered on the second floor to have burnt ropes attached to parts of attached to like the post of the bed or like the foot and there would also be like an electrical transformer plugged in to the wall with wires leading to the bed. They also found a metal tray containing syringes, small bottles apparently containing prescription drugs, swabs, and eye drops. And there was also a long iron pipe, various lengths of rope, and leather belts as well. The investigators noted that the posts on the bed had been tied, had been tied and they were excessively warned warned and that the men had to basically struggle themselves free while they searched the other parts of the house and stuff like that they discovered a human skull inside a closet the closet of the second floor a partially decomposed human head in the backyard they also found a vertebrae scarred by both a hacksaw knife marks stowed in a hallway and they also found um, some human teeth stowed in two envelopes and the hacksaw and mitter were also discovered in the basement. A chainsaw was also found that had blood stains, flesh, and pubic hairs. They did a aluminum test. I'm pretty sure I said that wrong. And they revealed that the basement and two plastic trash barrels were bloodstained.
they found 334 Polaroid images and 34 snapshot, snapshot prints of various male individuals that were also placed in many parts of the home. They found, you know, like the pad and it detailed the tortures of each victim very specifically. They also found several news clippings that were found from Kansas City Star regarding the a missing young man, Jerry, and they found a wallet and a driver's license belonging to James. Um, missing persons, um, ha like a missing person report was filed for them being missing um, to both of the men and Robert had been extensively questioned in their disappearance and he basically said, you know, I have nothing to do with it. Despite being a prime suspect in both cases, the police were unable to actually link him to either man's disappearance. After Robert gave his initial statement, he refused to talk without a lawyer present, probably because he knew he was in hot water. He then would have his lawyers um, threaten to file harassment accusations against the police unless their questions and their surveillance were seized. James' wife had to identify him in several photos. Paul identified a picture of his of this young man hanging upside down in Robert's basement and did say it was his son Jerry. A man named Kellogg um, was actually able to name the other three men in Polarides and that was Todd, Robert, and Larry. Shortly after Robert was informed about the discoveries that the police had found on his property, investigators attempted to conduct like an informal investigation on him, but Robert, Robert invoked his right to silence. Later, investigators wanted to obtain writing samples to Robert to say like, hey, you, you wrote these logs, but he refused to cooperate and was sentenced to only six months in jail for contempt of court. On July 22, 1988, a grand jury formally indicted Robert for the murder of Larry. The following month, he was arraigned and pleaded guilty at the Fourth Circuit of the Jackson County Court by Judge Alvin C. Randall to first-degree murder. A plea was entered uh, following that late morning in the recess in the arraignment hearing. It came to a surprise from the judge and the prosecutors, but they did accept the plea. Pat Hill was an assistant prosecutor and explained it was in the best interest of our client and the people of the state of Missouri. He was sentenced to life in jail without the possibility of parole. Upon being sentenced, Robert was transferred to Missouri State Penitentiary for his life sentence, but later would be temporarily placed in protective custody due to concerns for his safety. He should have just kept him there, in my opinion. On August 24th, um, Robert he went he got like a further sentence for the um, charges with um, 
Chris Bryson. He, so he got six counts of so, sodomy and one charge of assault being being dropped as part of a plea bargain that he did. He would also receive a further sentence of seven years pertaining one count of felonious restraint against Bryson on this date, which I didn't write the date down for some reason. I don't know why. Alright, and despite his initial plea of not guilty of the other murders, for, you know, the other people, he pled guilty on September 13th, 1988. He conducted a plea bargain with the prosecutors to avoid a death penalty in these remaining charges. In this plea, he had to plead guilty, which Robert did confess, and he also had to confess in graphic detail of who he killed, what he did to them, and what he did to each of their bodies. The confessions were to be given between, they were given on December 13th through the 15th in 1988. For his cooperation, they did not seek the death penalty. Bummer, y'all really just should have, in my opinion. But hey, each has their own. On December 19th, Robert waived his rights to rights to be tried for any of the outstanding murder charges. And he was actually convicted of first-degree murder of Robert Sheldon and four counts of second-degree murder on the other ones. Um, to make matters worse, Robert actually um, lodged complaints with prisoner guards regarding prison conditions. He said that prison officials knew he had high blood pressure, yet he didn't receive any of his prescription heart medication. Which, <laughs> go fuck yourself, Robert. Uh, nobody cares. Um... So then he wrote a letter to a local minister claiming that the prison officials knew of his heart blood pressure and yet they didn't do anything to provide him with the proper care. At 2 p.m. on October 1992, Robert complained to staff of heart pains and was taken to the prison infirmary. The medical staff determined he was having heart his heart was unstable and they had to call an ambulance because it wasn't in the best shape. Barbara was taken to a hospital in Columbia, Missouri, where he was pronounced dead from a heart attack at 3.55 p.m. He was 43 years old, which sucks because you should have lived longer than 50, Robert. I'm just saying, shortly after Judge Alvin Randall was informed of Robert's death, he responded to he responded like this and i just think it's so great because this is the best response couldn't have happened to a nicer guy obviously sarcasm but that was terrific so that was the story of robert andrew i don't know his last can't pronounce his last name junior um i hope he's rotting in prison and I hope he's paying for his crimes. Rest in peace to all the victims. And Christopher Bryson, 
good for you for making an escape and getting out. Without you, we don't know how long he would have went before he actually got caught. Anyway, guys, thank you so much for listening to me. Um, I just want to say thank you, you know, for people listening to my podcast in the United States. Um, thank you, New Zealand, for listening to me when I got on later and saw that people in New Zealand and the United States, well, I live in the United States and I was like, that's awesome. But when I saw New Zealand, I was New Zealand, I was like, oh my God, people, people are listening to me. And I told my husband and I was just so excited. Um, tomorrow, well, later today, I will be making a Instagram, Facebook, and an email and a Twitter, and you can follow me at Just a Girl in True Crime for Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you would like to email me, you can email me at Just a Girl in True Crime at gmail.com. I look forward to going on this journey with you guys still. And thank you so much for listening to me. Um, I lost what I was going to say because I am so tired. Um, tomorrow, well, later tonight, um, I'm thinking of doing a bonus episode. It might not be true crime, but is a case that I've heard. Not like a case, like an urban legend. Because I'm obsessed with urban legends too, guys. Um, about black-eyed children I've listened to people like talk about it I've heard stories and I just I just want to share it with you guys and you know if you have any like no not like no or you want me to um do a true crime you know you can always email it to me like I said at just a girl in true crime at gmail.com and I will get through it And I will do a case and I'll shout you out saying, you know, so-and-so wanted this case done. So here you go. And just thank you for listening. Thank you so much. Please share with your friends my podcast. Um, Leave a comment and everything of how I'm doing. I can take criticism a little bit. I'm a little sensitive. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. But, you know, criticism also helps somebody improve. And I think, like, that's the biggest thing. So, subscribe, share with your friends, spread the world, spread the word about our podcast and this crazy journey that we're going on together of Just a Girl and True Crime. And I will be uploading my Urban Legend tomorrow as long as I don't forget. Or it'll be up Sunday. Um, Podcast will drop every Wednesday. And every Friday, Friday early into Saturday morning, night. So two podcasts a week and everything like that. Um, I don't know what I'm doing my next main podcast on Wednesday. I have a couple ideas, but I'm not 100% sure yet. But I look forward to telling you guys the story. Alright guys, just a girl from True Crime. And I'll be hearing, listening, 
I will be telling you guys a story next time. See ya!